When your boss tells you to go see a movie as a part of your work, you don't ask questions. You just go and see the movie. You don't go expecting it to be very good, obviously, but when you get to see a movie as a part of your work, you just, you just go, not hoping for much, just hoping, or just glad you get to spend two hours of your day. Especially with me, young kids, I haven't seen a movie in six months. You just go. And so this week, our senior pastor, Tom, he uh, encouraged us all to go see a movie that's out now called The Intern, um, stars Robert De Niro and Anne Hathaway. And the, the premise of the movie is it's about a 70-year-old retiree who, after spending a lot of his time traveling, using his time however he wanted, he noticed that there was this huge hole in his life. And so this young, hip fashion company started this program Um, which was internships for senior citizens. And so he applies and he goes and he interviews for this position. And we have a clip of the interview. Take a look. There's going to be a couple of interviews today, Ben. We want to make sure that we both find the right fit. Business as usual is not really our motto, so we hope you have some fun here. This is the first time we're hiring senior interns. So some of our intern questions may not exactly fit your profile, but we're going to go for it anyway. Okay? Fire away. Where'd you go to school? I went to Northwestern. Hey, my brother went to Northwestern. Probably not at the same time. Probably not. He graduated in 2009. Class of 65. (laughs) Wow. What was your major? Do you remember? That is actually a really good movie. Maybe it's that I haven't uh, seen a movie in like eight years um, since I had kids. But it was a really good movie. And and even though it's a comedy meant to, to make you laugh in... Uh, many parts, it also speaks to what it is to be human, where we find meaning and value as, as human beings. And then in particular, the movie draws out the fact that a meaningful life is, is always going to be connected to other people and to your work, to your contribution, to what you do Monday through Saturday. Now, Victor Frankl, who's a Holocaust survival, survivor, he, a psychiatrist as well, made the case for that in a book he wrote called Man's Search for Meaning, which is a book I'm pretty sure I was supposed to read in college, and yet I didn't. Um, and he said, listen, if you're a human, you have two quests that you're on. A quest for intimacy, for relationships, and a quest for accomplishment, for work, for contribution. That any meaningful life is going to be filled with relationships with other human beings and work, a contribution, whether it's paid or not paid. And so for Frankel, for the intern, and for, for all of us, I would say a meaningful life, it's built on two things. How you love others, how you are in relationship to others, a quest for intimacy, and a quest for work, for contribution, for accomplishment. Which raises the question, why? Why is it, if, if, if I was to ask you, what, what, do you give, what gives you most meaning in your life? My guess is you would talk about other people, or you would talk about the, the best things you've done for others or, or to others in, in your life. You'd talk about your contribution or your relationships. Why is that? Why do we draw so much rich meaning in life from relationships and from work? Well, last week we, we started to answer that question a little bit in the story of the Good Samaritan as we've launched into this new series, Neighborly Love. And the basic point last week in the, the Good Samaritan story is that if you want to love your neighbor... Well, you have to have compassion, you have to have capacity. To love your neighbor, you actually need to be able to help your neighbor, and that that requires having a compassion, a love, a concern for your neighbor, as well as actually giftedness to go and help them make a difference in their life. And so we're asking the question over six weeks, how do you love your neighbor? What does that look like? How do we live into that as a church and as individuals? How is it that we love our neighbor? 
And I want us to take another step this morning. We, we talked about compassion, capacity last week. But, but what I want to say that this morning is that living that life of love to your neighbor, of compassion and capacity, it's not an optional calling as a part of your life. It's not something where if you get to at some point, you should really think about that and do that with your life. What I want to say this morning is actually that, that's who you are as a human being. That you cannot have a meaningful life if you're not loving your neighbor through compassion and through building capacity to actually help your neighbor. That this is central to who you are as a human being. It's why you get such rich meaning and fulfillment out of others and your relationships to them and out of your accomplishments, the contributions you make to others and for others. And that's where you're going to find your meaning in your life. And so if you're a, a person of compassion and capacity, the reason you get meaning out of that is because it's who you are. That's what you were made to be. And if you're not doing those things, it's not just that you need to add things to, to, to your to-do list. It's actually, you're not, you're not being human. This is what you were made for. So what do I mean? Well, that's what Genesis 1 Gets at. And what I want to do this morning is unpack Genesis 1 under three basic questions. One is, is why, why do we find such meaning from relationships? Why we need others for meaning? Why we need to contribute for meaning? And what we miss when we seek meaning. So we all want a meaningful life. We need others. We need to make a contribution, but we also miss something. And so let's press into Genesis 1 there. First, with why you and I need others. You and I, listen, we were created for others. And my guess is that's probably not a controversial statement. Whether you're a Christian or whether you're not, you probably agree with that. That Listen, we're created for relationship, for others. And yet the Bible is going to press into this in a way that, that no other religion, no other worldview, no other philosophy has. It's going to speak to a level of dignity and value and significance to human beings that no other religion view of the world comes close to. Let's look at, at verse 26 again. Creation narrative. Then God said, let us make man, humankind, in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, the livestock, and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The human beings, Genesis 1 makes clear, we are made in the image of God. So what does that even mean? I think the person who maybe best unpacked this was, was C.S. Lewis, who in his sermon, uh, The Weight of Glory, said that, that human beings have this weight, this glory to them that no other animal has. There's a, a significance and a value to human beings you don't find anywhere else. And in his sermon, he, he said this, which I want us to hear. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a whore and a corruption such as you now meet, it in it at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one of these destinations. It's in light of these overwhelming possibilities that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. All friendship, all love, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Now Lewis's point there isn't that you and I actually are gods or goddesses. What he's saying is we are what Psalm 8, what Nate read earlier, is that when God made us, he made us just a little bit lower than himself. We were made in his image, in the image of God. 
What you need to understand is this is not what every religion thinks about human beings. That if you lived in the ancient world, you would have thought what most people thought, which is that, that human beings exist because the gods had things they didn't want to do, work they would, didn't want to do, and then they made us so they could go have fun and do whatever they wanted to do. Right? So we just were made to do all the backbreaking labor on earth. Right? Or today, the, pre- the predominant view in, in our culture is that human beings are simply better evolved and smarter animals. Right? We're higher on the evolutionary food chain, and that's what makes human beings set apart, is we think, we feel, we have cognit- um, cognitive um, abilities with our brains other animals don't have. Which, of course, neither one of those come close to the dignity and the value which Genesis 1 is saying human beings have, that we are made in the image of God. And to just press in there for a moment, that belief in God can be very difficult. And in particular, right, there, there are days when I just wish God would come across and sit in the chair next to me and talk to me directly. Right? That he would be physically present in front of me. And yet what Genesis 1 is saying is God is much more present around you than you realize. His image is all around you, constantly, nonstop. Beings made in his own image are speaking to you, talking to you. It's worth, for me at least, asking the question this morning, that why, why is it that you and I get such rich meaning out of our relationships with other people, whether it's our friends, whether it's our family, whether it's our kids? Why is it that human beings leave such an impact and, and, and create such a meaning for us in, in our lives? Is it because they're animals that resemble us? Is it because that we, we have a little bit higher of a brain function than other animals, so we think our brains just fire in different ways, so we think things that aren't really true? Or could it be that Genesis 1 is right, and you and I are made in the image of God? So of course, when you talk to, or when you interact with, or you become close to another human being, you would find such rich meaning and value and significance out of that relationship because they're made in the image of God. That you have never talked to a mere mortal, which is why you and I find such rich meaning in relationships. The ancient world couldn't explain that. Evolution doesn't explain that. Genesis 1 is saying, no wonder you love people so much. And other people, when they they love you, it creates such value in your life. So human beings are made in the image of God. But that that creates a, a reality of what does that mean for us? What, what, what does that actually work out to practically? And, and, and Genesis 1 has five commands God gives to Adam and Eve, to the first human beings, to go and to do in all the world. It's be fruitful, it's multiply, it's fill the earth, subdue the earth, have dominion over it. Five imperatives. And the center of those commands is the first one, to be fruitful. It's a central command to all of us who are human beings. It's to bear fruit. And the next four commands really spell out, spell out what that means. right? Bear fruit. Multiply, fill the earth, have dominion, subdue the earth. So first, being fruitful, it means to multiply and fill the earth, which means God had the intention for lots of human beings to be on earth. That was his intention. And I want to be careful here because there's a tension um, that, that, that begins to enter in here because that what this doesn't mean is that if you have kids, you're varsity, and if you don't have kids, you're junior varsity, right? If you're single or you're, you're married without kids, you're junior varsity. If you're married with kids, you're varsity. That's not what, what God is getting across here when he says to be fruitful. That he has two intentions behind this command. The first is God's intention for humanity is to collaborate. Right? He makes us independently um, incomplete, right? That, that it's not just males the image of God and, and females the image of God. It's that together, male and female, we image God together. And so we need one another. And that's why every job you have ever done 
right? It's, it's with someone else or it's for someone else, right? There's no job where you just go and you're by yourself and you're off somewhere in, in the wilderness and you're not helping anyone or anywhere, right? It's, every job is connected to another person, for another person or with another person. And out of that work, we're to bear fruit. And for some of us, that includes kids, but for some of us, it doesn't, right? It includes making a contribution into the community or into this world that maybe isn't your primary fruit being kids. Maybe it's something completely different. And what Genesis 1 is getting at is that there's these two streams of fruitfulness. It's yes, it's, it's having kids, but it's also your work, your contribution to this world. And so I just want to say briefly before I get into the kids moment is that if, if your primary vocation has nothing to do with kids, or if you don't have kids, if you're single, you're married without kids, Genesis 1 is not a prelude to marriage. It's a prelude to all of humanity working together to fill the earth so that we collaborate together and create a better place than what we found. So that's one thing. But secondly, this, there is an intention here to, to, to reproduce, for there to be more children. And the only reason why I'm pressing into this for a minute is just because my own, my own conviction is that kids are actually less valued today than they were 30 or 40 years ago. And even though in the church we tend to prioritize families and kids over single or unmarried, the world, it's sort of the flip um, reality. So I, I just want to say, if, if your primary vocation is raising children, right, whether you're a teacher, a stay-at-home mom, whatever it is that your work may be, if your primary vocation is trying to raise children, I, I hope Genesis 1, 26 and 27 fills you with an incredible amount of meaning. Right, that Dr. Seuss understood Genesis well, really Genesis one really well when he said, "A person is a person, no matter how small. Right, no matter how tiny that person is, it's made in the image of God." And so, if your primary vocation is, was or is raising children, that's not second class work. That your main task is the raising and the shaping and the subduing of a creature. Who, if you saw the beauty of what God intends to make that creature, you'd be tempted to worship it, as Lewis says. A being made in the image of God. You are not working with a mere mortal. It's dignifying, important work. That God wants the earth full of human beings. And so whether a part of that for your role is to raise those beings into adulthood and maturity, or whether it's to create a community where those adults and beings could flourish. Your job is disconnected from, from kids. We're both called to be fruitful and fill the earth. And this point, that's, that's why you, you find such meaning in your relationships. Why you find such meaning with others. So that's point one. Why we need others for meaning. Point two, why we need to, to contribute to find meaning. So after God says to Adam and Eve, fill the earth. I want lots of people. Many people all over the world. The next, he says, I want you to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. Now, what does, it, what does that mean? Well, it certainly doesn't mean that, that we get to do whatever we want with the earth and destroy it. And, and ultimately, the, the, the earth is God's. It's not ours. And so we are stewards of this creation to use it as God would want to use it. We're, we're God's kingdom bears in this, this world to, to use his creation as he would want us to use it. But... This does not mean we leave the world untouched. And for example, growing up, my, my mammal had a sitting room, um, which was sort of an ironic name because no one was ever allowed to sit in there. Um, there was a couch and there were, there were two chairs, and it was made very clear, to me especially as a young grandson who was prone to get things dirty and messy, I was never to sit on the couch of the two chairs. And that room looked impeccable because no one ever went into it. No one sat on anything in there. No one talked in there. No one even talked about going in there, right? It's, it was a beautiful room untouched. And that is not what God is saying here is, hey, I've made this perfect world. Don't touch anything, right? Don't mess it up, right? No, what he says is 
Now go and, and make something of this world I've, I've given to you. All right, go and, and create. Look at all I've given you. Do something with it. Make it, improve it, make it better, subdue it, have dominion. Go and create. Right, this week I read a tweet that said that the guy or the girl who created the chair was the Steve Jobs of his or her generation. Right, and that, at some point a human being said, you know, I'm tired of standing all day. I'd kind of like to sit down for a while and, and not be a rock or the ground. I want a comfortable spot to sit down. And they made a chair and all of humanity was better for it forever. Now we have lazy boys. I mean, that person started an amazing revolution, right? And that's, that's adding value to, to this world. And so in reflection on Genesis 1, I want to say two things as we think about this, this world full of potential we're to go into and, and create and make. Two things that I... I'm guessing you're going to push your boundaries a little bit, and I hope, I hope you get a little bit uncomfortable. The first, Genesis 1 says every human being adds value. It's a point of Genesis 1. In the 1960s, uh, Dr. Paul Ehrlich, who was a, a professor at Stanford University, wrote a book called The Population Bomb. And his basic point was that if, if you and I don't stop procreating, there will be massive famines and starvations all over the world because there will be so many people that we cannot feed them. After all, at the beginning of the 20th century, there were a billion people. Right? So just a little over 100 years ago, a billion people. Today, there are over 7 billion people. But think about that. Our, our population increased seven times in just 100 years. And his point was, listen, if, the world's going to burn if you do that. We've got to stop pro- procreating. And he, he, listen, he was so serious, he got a vasectomy himself. Didn't procreate himself because he believed what he was saying. So was he wrong? Yes. Massively wrong. And while there's still, there's still famine, starvation today, any economist or anyone would tell you the reason for that is injustice and oppression and a lack of distribution. Not that we don't have enough food to feed people. It's that we have oppressive systems still not getting food to people who are hungry. But despite these problems existing, the economic growth in the last hundred years across the world has been incredibly staggering, mind-blowing. Let's take a look at this graph. Um, that if you were to, so it starts in the year 1250, if you were to push that all the way to the beginning of time, what you would find is there was essentially no economic growth for the first thousands of years of human existence. And in the last 100 to 150 years, you see the economic growth in the world. People lifted out of poverty, both in our country and around the world. Massive economic growth. So that raises the question, what happened? My answer would be, well, economic ingenuity, new ideas. And the reason those things happened is because we added six billion human beings into the world. Human beings with ideas and creativity, new businesses, new, new thoughts to, to contribute and make the world better than how they found it. That every, every human being has fruit to offer into this world. And Dr. Ehrlich mis- fundamentally misunderstood something completely unique to human nature. The second thing I want to say from Genesis 1, which may push your boundaries even a little further. So one, every human being adds value. Second, Genesis 1 is a call for us all as human beings to create wealth. What do I mean? Well, Dr. Ehrlich made the mistake of thinking human beings were essentially, they're just, we're just like animals. Right, so I remember growing up in Indianapolis, every two or three years, the, the mayor would have to call on all the hunters to come and shoot all the deer in the city and, and take them out because the, the deer population would just, you know, they'd get out of the places where people hunted them in Indiana. They'd run to the city. They'd overtake the city and, and they'd make a mess of the, the ecosystem, right? Because they're animals. They just eat stuff. They don't care. They just make a mess of things. So more deer is not good. We have to shoot them and then we have to eat them, right? And this, at least I have to eat them. Um, 
And so they would give these, these, these hunt, the licenses to hunt in the city because deers would make a mess of the ecosystem. And that's how a lot of people view human beings, right? The human beings, you just add more of them. They're just gonna, it's more people eating from, from our system. It's more people taking, right? And, and what Genesis 1 says, no. These human beings are, are called into the world, made in the image of God, to create and, and to add value and to make the world better. In other words, there's not one giant pie you and I fight over. And depending on who gets more pie than others, then, then some people go hungry, some don't. What, what I think Genesis 1 would say is that actually human beings have this capacity to make the pie get bigger. And I think that's the economic story of the last hundred years. And, and listen, there are problems to that. We're going to have a sermon on injustice. That's in a couple weeks. Today we're living in Genesis 1 in the ideal world. So I want to speak to the ideal world a little bit this morning. And the reality is Genesis 1 presents human beings as ones who can go into the world, can subdue this creation, use it well to, to make things better for the world that adds value and creates wealth. That, some real simple ex- illustrations of this. And the God, uh, the Andy Crouch, uh, a Christian author, p- puts it like this. Is it, the world has grapes in it. And human beings took grapes and made wine. Now, this was our senior pastor's illustration. If you have a problem with that illustration, you can go send your email to Tom Nelson. Tom in. But his point is, grapes are good. Wine is, depending on your position, very good. Right? Or we have grain. We have wheat in the world. Right? And, and human beings take grain and wheat, and we make bread. Right? Grain and wheat, listen, those are good things. Bread is a very good thing. Right? Or we have, there's cows. God made cows. And what do we do? Well, we made leather out of cows, and we put yarn in that leather, we made baseballs, and now we're watching the playoffs this week. Right? Cows are good, baseball's very good. Right? Right? That, that's the point, is that, that God gives us this, this, this world full of potential and says, go and make something of it. Make it better than how you found it. That we human beings are called to create wealth. And that's why we find such rich meaning in our contribution when it's meant the way that it's supposed to go. My guess is maybe, maybe you hear all this and you say, Tim, that, that's great, but two objections. One is, well, my work is frustrating, and I don't feel like the contribution I make means very much. I feel more like a machine than a human being God put in the world and said, turn, you know, turn me loose and, and go create. Or secondly, and this is an important one, and we're going to press more into this in, in a couple weeks. Or secondly, what about, what about the poor, the materially poor, who don't have that opportunity, who, who their creativity is either stolen from them in slavery and oppression, or just the lack of opportunity, right? F- fewer open doors, fewer um, roads to go and to do these things. And that leads us to our last point. Frankel was right. And life of meaning is a life, one, that's, that comes from others, our relationships. Two, from our contribution, from our accomplishments, from our work, whether it's paid or whether it's unpaid. But thirdly, we miss something when we seek after meaning. You and I, as we, as we go after meaning in life, we tend to miss something. We tend to completely reject what's at the heart of Genesis 1. The, the, when I was in seminary, I worked at, at Starbucks primarily for two reasons. Um, one, it was cheap health insurance. So while I was in school, uh, it gave my, you know, let me have a baby um, and, and gave me good health insurance. And two, I love coffee, and that meant I got lots of free coffee. So that actually, I probably got paid more in how much coffee I drank than actually my income or my health insurance. Um, but, but to be honest, for most of the two years, I, I worked there. I thought my job was, was mostly a complete waste of time. 
I felt like a machine with how customers treated me or how my, the store managers, how the company was run. I felt more like a machine than someone who's creative and able to, to go and make that space better than how I found it. Also, also, I just didn't make very much money for how much time that I spent at work. It was frustrating from those two levels. And yet some customers that we encountered were incredible people. One in particular, her name was Peggy Ann. She was older. She had two grown daughters. All three were our regular customers. I mean, I saw each, all three every day I worked, if not more than once in a day when I worked. And when I first met Peggy Ann, I made the mistake of calling her Peggy. She reminded me very quickly her name is Peggy Ann. Both names. So from that day forward, I made her drink and remembered her name, Peggy Ann. And her drink was complicated. It was a decraft grande, whole milk mocha, nine pumps of mocha, two pumps of vanilla, extra hot stirring the whipped cream. And if I forgot any of those pieces, she reminded me, even though I knew it in my head, if I didn't say it to her, she would repeat it back to me. She was a bit of a pain, and so were her two daughters, to be honest. But we love them. They were part of our customers' Regular goers. One morning, Peggy Ann came into our, our store, and one of her two daughters, again, who I saw every day in the drive-thru, one of the brightest, kindest, most joyful customers we had, for whatever reason, in her own life, one of Peggy Ann's daughters had committed, committed suicide. So Peggy came in. Starbucks was one of the first places she came after it happened for two reasons. One was that, that we all knew her name, both parts. And two is we had a drink that we could give to her that no matter how terrible her day was going, always said, we communicate, we we love you. Not just with our presence, but also with what we made, what we gave to her. That my job at Starbucks, it was a complete waste of time, but only because I was doing my job for me. I went to work each day knowing I needed health insurance and I needed money and I needed coffee. And so I went in for what Starbucks would give to me. I wanted to take from Starbucks' fruits and eat of it, and that is why I went in to work. And Genesis 1 flips that on its head. It says to us, listen, you do not find meaning from relationships and from your work or contribution by what you take from others, but by what you give, by your fruits. Right? And that's where our culture breaks down, that ultimately most of us, or many of us, find meaning by taking it from others or grabbing it from others rather than letting meaning flow out of us into our neighbor. And Genesis 1 flips this on its head. It says you don't go to work just for a paycheck. You don't love your neighbor just so that you can be loved by them at some point. Genesis 1 flips all of it by, by its central command of saying be fruitful. Which why do trees bear fruit? The fruit that trees bear, that, that doesn't give the tree any nourishment, right? The fruit is for others. It's to produce fruit so that others can come and taste and be nourished and be strengthened. That the meaningful life is the fruitful life for others to improve the lives of others. So the one question I want to ask all of us this morning is what fruit are you producing? That when your neighbor comes to you, how's your fruit? Is it nourishing? Satisfying? Or is it bitter? Tasteless? That we are called to be trees that bear fruit that others could come and, and feast on our lives from meaning pouring out of us. That the meaningful life is the fruitful life. And so I want to give us three practical handles as we, as we think about what does this mean? Where do we go with this? Three things to think about. First, 
create. That we were created to be creative. And your creativity may be the most beautiful way you can love your neighbor. And yet my fear here is that, that many of you will, will minimize your own creativity. That we can easily think that like, if, if you're not a polished singer or songwriter, you win a Nobel Prize or you make lots of money, that your creativity is somehow less than others. That if you're not a Steve Jobs in business, well, you must not have made as, bu- uh, as much of an impact or you're not as important. And yet all of us, we were created to, to be creative in a way that reflects God being made in his image, to bless our neighbors with our creative output. And so for some of you in your life, that's meant starting a new business and trying to create a new product or a new avenue to serve your neighbor and add value to their life. And some of you, it's, just, it's making meals that nourish or bless people who are sick. One of the things I'm blown away by at Christ Community is how many people have come to me from all campuses and said, I didn't have to cook for a long period of time because people brought me food to eat in a time when I was sick or whatever I was, was going through. For others of you, maybe it's, it's outdoor landscaping or do-it-yourself projects at home that you do for yourself and for others. Some of you can design or you can build anything. Some of you can actually work on computers and save people like me who have no idea what's going on with my computer screen. You help us. It's huge. Believe me. Heather, whatever your creative output is, do not think less of it. There's all kinds of ways to love your neighbor. So be creative and use the way God has gifted you in your creativity to love and serve your neighbor. And most importantly, do not think that your creativity, no matter how small you may think it is, is not a way to impact and to love your neighbor. That is what a meaningful life is. And whatever your fruit is, whatever your creativity is, use it for the glory of God and do not think less of it. That maybe your, your creativity will lead you to start a new business and add lots of jobs into a community. Or maybe your idea will be for, for just a meal to give to someone. Or maybe all you have to offer is to make someone a decaf grande, whole milk, mocha, nine pumps mocha, two pumps vanilla, extra hot stirring the whipped cream. And as someone who's done both the hard work and entrepreneurial work of starting a new church and also made that mocha, and hand it off to a mother's broken heart. I can tell you both mattered, and both are of the same value. So whatever your creative output is, give it away for your neighbor. Create. Well, secondly, I would say, is, is practically as we head out. So create, get creative. Secondly, work toward the fruitfulness of all. That in the Bible, fruitfulness and wealth is about far more than individual prosperity. It's always about flourishing communities. And so, for example, when God was forming Israel into a nation, giving them the promised land, and sending them out, when he talked about wanting to bless them and make them fruitful, here's what he said to Israel. Blessed, Deuteronomy 28.4, Blessed shall be the fruits of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. That God promises to bless their, their economic life. They were, that was an agricultural community. So God's saying, I'm going to bless your businesses. I'm going to bless your work, bless your community. So there is flourishing for all. And this shouldn't surprise us because if every human being is made in the image of God, it means every human being has a contribution to make, a unique fruit to add into this world. And that's why we Christians should care deeply and fight incredibly hard against poverty and oppression and injustice more than anyone. Because those who are poor, the vulnerable, have a contribution to make. Gifts, ideas, creativity to make the world better. And when human beings made in the image of God 
because of injustice and oppression, poverty, slavery, whatever that is, when they're not able to add their fruit into the world, we all are, are poorer for it. The world is missing beauty when there are people in this world who cannot make that contribution, who have injustice over them because of their race, because of where they live, because of their lives. Whatever the reason is, when people cannot make a contribution, the problem isn't just for them, although it is. The problem's for us, too. There's fruit there we don't get to taste. And so we as Christians should fight hard against poverty and work toward the flourishing of all. Interestingly, one sociologist who did a study of, of those who are, in, who are materially poor said that the, the materially poor, when they think of their own poverty, they don't think of having less stuff than, than you and I. What they think of is shame, that they're garbage, that they're less valuable. And that shouldn't surprise us in light of Genesis 1, should it? Because if we're made in the image of God to contribute to others, and we can't, we're missing humanness, who we are as human beings, not just a better life. We're missing who God made us to be. And so may you and I as Christians work for the flourishing of all. Just a real practical example. One of the pastors in Baltimore, when the riots were going on, when someone asked him, what can we do for you and your city? What he said was, what you can do is come and start a business in the communities that are not flourishing so that people have jobs to contribute. That the poor, when they, when they don't have a place to use their gifts and to bear their fruit, of course, of course the society's going to break down. Because our humanness is built into making a contribution. And so may you and I, in, in all of our vocations, whether it's our private charity, but also through our work, may we work to the flourishing of every human being in Kansas City, in our communities, and in our world. So create, work toward the flourishing of all, and thirdly, eat the true fruit. The story of the Bible starts in Genesis 3 with humanity eating the wrong fruit. A fruit that said, you and I can be like God. We can do anything we want. That we are the center of our universe. That we decide what's right and wrong. That we get meaning from ourselves. That we can be like God. And so you and I, we struggle to bear fruit in our lives, don't we? Our relationships, our friendships, our marriages, as parents or as kids to our own parents, we make our relationships about us, don't we? We want them to give meaning to us. We want their fruits, but we don't think first of us bearing fruit. Or in our work and our contribution, we think we're not doing enough or what we're doing is not important or we wish we were doing something else or we just do it for ourselves for a paycheck or for whatever benefits we get from our workplace. And Genesis 1 is saying, no, that's the wrong fruit. Stop eating from that fruit. So it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus, in John 12, when he was speaking to his disciples on the way to the cross, talked about a different kind of fruit. A fruit not where you, you take from others, but a fruit where you give yourself away for others. A meaning that flows out of you to others. A life that bears fruit so others can come and taste your life and be nourished. That he said this, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so Jesus went into the ground alone. He tasted death, the most bitter fruit you and I produced. By wanting to be gods and wanting to be our own lives, we, we did produce fruit. And that fruit is death. And every one of us will taste from it at some point. And Jesus himself tasted from it. And like every other human being, Jesus was planted like a seed into the ground, but he was different. 
Because his seed did not die in the ground, but was raised to life and now has borne much fruit. And he invites you and I to come and eat from that fruit so we can be people who bear fruit to others. To come and eat the true fruit, to take ourselves out of the center of our existence and to be people who love our neighbors by bearing a rich fruit for them to come and to eat. So just a few chapters after Jesus says to his disciples about being a grain of wheat dying into the ground and bearing fruit. He says this is a promise to you and I. If we're to come and eat that fruit of him, to live and to dwell in Jesus, you and I will be people who bear fruit. This is what Jesus says in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. Let's pray.